if we're paying for ADSB for manned aircraft, shouldn't there be something out there for unmanned aircraft for the broadcast side? I completely agree. Once we've picked what that solution is, right now we don't have any clear winners. Good point. I can't point to something and go, okay, buy this from, uh, you know, from this company. This is the system we all want. It's the equivalent of ADSB, uh, but for a small aircraft, uh, that just doesn't exist out there. Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm James Poss. And I'm Sean Bullard. James, what are we covering in episode 11? Well, Sean, last week we covered LTE as a technical solution for small UAS remote ID. And this week we're going to be covering the competing technology, uh, which is a broadcast solution. Uh, I think broadcast tech is a great answer to the question of how do you provide remote ID if you're out of cell phone coverage. But it has plenty of challenges just like LTE does. Okay, so uh, I'm not an engineer. But providing remote ID via broadcast seems pretty simple to me. Why is this so difficult? Well, in my personal opinion, uh, it, it could have been easy if the FAA was willing to use low-power ADSB as a broadcast solution. But uh, FAA-AT, the Air Traffic Directorate, is convinced that even low-power, you know, 0.5-watt ADSB will saturate the ADSB frequencies. You know, I used to run Assure, uh, the FAA's Drone Research Center of Excellence, and I'm here to tell you they don't really have any hard research behind that conclusion other than an old minor report, and even that says low-power you know, not the standard power, which is much much higher, uh, that ADSB is a potential solution. So now uh, we're kind of stuck in a in a spectrum do loop. We got to go out and find spectrum for this, and that is about the toughest thing you can do in the 21st century. So tell me, why do we need broadcast if LTE might work? Well, you know, we, we covered that a lot last time, and you know the obvious uh, you know, answer to that is in situations where they can't hear you now. So there's no LTE coverage um, out there. Done right, broadcast allows law enforcement to re receive remote ID directly with a habit and go through a network. Broadcast also allows manned aircraft and other drones to receive remote ID positioning data directly without the latency of network solution. And that could be absolutely crucial in a collision avoidance situation. Okay, so is anyone out there working on a solution that, you know, maybe before the FAA has even come out with the guidance? Well, it's sort of hard to tell at the moment because no one wants their competitors to know what they're really up to. You know, so Verizon, Qualcomm, AT&T are aggressively seeking market share for LTE remote ID. Uh, some of the traditional air traffic control companies like Harris uh, Corporation are looking to reuse their existing ADSB infrastructure and maybe even uh, state emergency radio network infrastructure for the broadcast remote ID. And there's even a couple of entrepreneurs out there that are hard at work trying to sell the small amount of available spectrum for remote ID. But thankfully, it's a really, really technical situation. And we've got a guy that can cover really, really technical situations really, really well. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what's worked and what's not worked 
Is that right? Yep. That's exactly where we're going in episode 11. We're going to talk with someone who's been testing out specific UAS broadcast systems in a real-world environment and is well-respected for his efforts. Yes, indeed, James, he is. And that is why you and I have invited John Daniels to be on Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat so he can enlighten us on what he's doing in the deserts of Nevada, Arizona, and Utah. John Daniels is CEO of Praxis Aerospace Concepts International, is a true thought leader in the UAS arena. Jonathan, welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. James, John, thank you for inviting me today. Oh, hey, no problem. All right, before we get started, how, how does one get to be a, a, a drones man, let alone a, a broadcast remote ID drone guy? Could you tell us a little bit about your background and Praxis? I can. So I've been working in unmanned aviation for about 20 years. I started out in uniform, which is where most of the, the original experience came from, uh, and then transitioned into the civil arena after I retired in 2012. Uh, lucked out, did standards for about 13 years, uh, including RTCA and the military side, and then ASCM for the last eight years. I've uh, been a member of... Wow. Okay. Right, yeah, it's flown really bad. Uh, <laughs> was a member of both the remote ID and the UAS controlled airspace arcs. Uh, working group lead for ASTM's design construct and verification standard for lightweight UAS. So uh, I went from 20 years of saying, I have a maintenance guy, it's not me, to, okay, I'm the airworthiness guy. Um, yeah, buddy. And then uh, in my day job, I have a cluster of companies in Southern Nevada, uh, including a general aviation airport that services unmanned aircraft almost exclusively. Uh, and that's given us that whole concept of the three A's for all of our clients, airspace, airmen, and aircraft. Hmm. Um, just a couple things lately, and, and this is to show where we've at, is uh, our training company signed an exclusive deal with uh, Flight Safety International for UAS and started teaching classes in Henderson. Um, Last month, we had two greater than 55-pound aircraft. They're turbine-powered, uh, certified for BV loss. And yes, it's the, the EV loss with chase observers uh, and not true BV loss. Did you say above 55? It was above 55 pounds. Really happy with that one. Oh, you're smiling right now, <laughs> folks. He's smiling. Uh, and we have them running up and down our 38-mile corridor we have running from that airport. And then this summer, we're doing some UTM pilot program work for the state of Nevada, uh, hosted at that same location. Um, I know I've forgotten something in there, but it's that, uh, I hate to say it, but it's not the crawl, walk, run. It's baby flop around a little bit, and then maybe we crawl. <laughs> right. no, regardless, it sounds like you got a full-time day job. No, it sounds like you actually have like three or four full-time day jobs. <laughs> it definitely feels that way. Right, 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 right. So, so tell us a little bit more as you as you have these multiple. You're, you're you're almost like a Renaissance man, where you've got so many different irons in the fire. Can you tell us how do these broadcast technologies how how do, how do they fit in within remote ID? So we've all understood that remote ID is, is a key factor of, of anything in aviation as far as integration, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's our old transponders on our legacy manned aircraft or the, the new open area of what remote ID is looking at for small UAS and then the larger than 55 pound UAS. Um, and part of that sets up is, is that we've really come out to two different systems, right? So small UAS are going to have one and then the over 55 and the ones that are flying not on part 107, but flying on part 91 are going to have a different system of their own. And that's part of our challenge because it's the Jekyll and Hyde of, of the regulators, right? When it's small UAS, they want one. When it's large UAS, they want something different. Uh, and when I say regulators, I don't just mean my favorite aviation administration, but all the other regulators who have now joined the fight, right? The DHS, the, uh, you know, the trade and, and customs and all these other people who are now getting involved. Uh, and the international players too. You got you to consider them. Oh, completely. 
And, and, that, and that difference of approaches is, is really challenging for the broadcast piece because if we look at something that happens internationally, uh, like the French beacons, and say this is perfect, and then we want to bring that here, there's a bunch of different regulatory uh, requirements here that make that no longer possible. Okay. So we kind of covered, uh, you know, the kind of technologies you're looking at. Could, could you give us the pros and cons of each viable tech? So I'm, I'm going to bin them. You kind of went with you must have looked at ADSB a little bit. I love ADSB actually. So okay. we, we've actually run two different things with ADSB. We have a low power ADSB solution okay. for the okay. higher than four hundred foot altitudes. Right, uh, right. We've been flying up to two thousand feet for a couple of years now. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the second piece is. Uh, we actually have some protected spectrum that we run ADSB over, so we get all the advantage of the ADSB waveform and the, the, the proof of concept, uh, but we're not interfering with the protected spectrum. We're not saturating ATC, and um, that's been fantastic because now, uh, while that's not open to everyone because it is over protected spectrum, uh, I can basically put a two watt ADSB on something. We get all the data and traffic, and and that feeds our our remote identification. So you're using 700 megahertz, right? Oh, you caught me. Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the entrepreneurial guys. We were trying not to mention the number, but okay, we'll we'll, we'll leave that in. Okay, okay. So ADSB, we can come back to right, that. So what, a- what about ADSB the other one. stuff? You know, uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and, uh, what the French are using. You know, that right. Kind of so stuff. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. You know, they, they all come back down to and what I was trying to get. They all come back to the same beacon. They're all a beacon, no matter what they're transmitting over, whether it's two point four or five point eight uh, or nine hundred or and and the challenge there is all beacons have the same problem. I've got to get the same message out that everybody understands. I have to be able to have a receiver that can pick up that frequency, and then I've got to do something with it. And, and that's where we start getting this weird blur of, I can have 15 different broadcasts out there, but if I can't plot them all together, we're, we're going to have you know a completely dysfunctional detect and avoid system. Because if I'm not on the right system, I don't have your your dot. And uh, air traffic control is all about making dots not or, touch. Or, or work with 15 <laughs> different dots. You don't right. know which one. It, is exactly. The one. Yeah. So that's part of the issue is, is, is what you do with the data. The second one is, um, because it's the license exempt or unlicensed frequencies, every single thing people buy nowadays is operating on that frequency. The entire internet of things operates on that, that 2.4, all the Bluetooth items. So just as an example, you know, your car, pacemakers, my Fitbit, my Apple Watch, my phone, my laptop, all these things are trying to operate on that same frequency. And that adds to that bandwidth saturation, not just the aircraft. Granted, we don't have that problem at 200, 400 feet, 600 feet. Uh, AGL because there's not so much of that down there, but there are some big restrictions to those higher frequencies. Okay, so why is it okay to have a very, very saturated Wi-Fi Bluetooth band, but it's not okay to have a slightly saturated ATSB low power spectrum? So the somewhat tongue-in-cheek answer is that when my Apple Watch uh, skips a beat, planes don't crash. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Right. It really comes into it, it's the, the criticality well, of it. If we pick Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, that is, it could be a, uh, a critical function. Your Bluetooth remote ID goes out on you. So one of the key things I think we, we need to be aware of as we're building, uh, building these forward is uh, what I call an essential and non-essential logical bus. Is if we make that mission critical, then we have to make you know, the assurance levels, we have to raise them up to a greater level of, of reliability. Uh, if we don't make that mission critical, if it's just a license plate on the car, then we can get away with and, and we can survive and be resilient on uh, a much smaller level of reliability so that that doesn't become a big accident. Challenge to that is if we're using our um, our remote ID for our detect and avoid, it's now becoming a mission critical, flight critical 
well, uh, item. Yeah, and we were told to look at that uh, by the ARC to look to see if you couldn't dual-use things. So so what are you saying here? I mean, if, if you go to Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, it's too well it, messed it, up to use for detecting? It, it almost sounds like you're splitting hairs here, almost, okay. where you're, you're now talking about something different. <laughs> no, I don't think he is, because we were no. told to look at the, the right. detect and avoid in addition to remote ID by the ARC, weren't so, we? So the idea was to remove the burden on the manufacturer and the operator, right? So instead of telling you you have to have five different transmitters that five different regulators and agencies are using, we have one and we get the most amount of, of ability out of it. And and we do that with everything. We, that's just a traditional aviation piece is you have redundant systems and you use the most out of them. Again, where it gets into some of that challenge, when we want to put too much information on it or we want to use them you know, too heavily, uh, I, you know, I heard there was some conversations during the arc of, well, we want to know where your, your cameras and payloads are looking at, and that information has to come out as well. Well, now we're taking yeah. non-flight critical items right. and putting yeah. it into a flight critical piece. So it is. It is a little bit of, I wouldn't say hair splitting, but it's, it's sausage making of well, what, what kind of sausage are we really trying to get with the remote ID solution? And that's where things become a challenge. It's very easy if I'm a manufacturer to have one transmitter and one receiver. And that's what I put everything else on because I can save profit and price. From an aviation perspective, from an airworthiness perspective, you can't have one because it will break. So we need those multiples and those redundancies. And I think we've seen in some of the comments for the ANPRM that that redundancy in that multiple systems was one of the things that certain manufacturers didn't like. They don't want to have that burden. Well, it does hurt your bottom line, but it keeps the aircraft safe. And that's what we're really trying to go for remote ID. Well, certainly if you if you plan to use remote ID for detecting the voice. So is, is that the interest that you guys are looking into making a demarcation below 400 feet to where perhaps you're not relying on remote ID for detecting the void because manned aircraft are really not supposed to fly below that. Or if they do, they assume the risk of hitting a drone and above 400 feet to where manned aircraft are definitely going to be flying VFR. So I, th I think it breaks down to whether we're, we're flying under 107, a 107 waiver, which is slightly different, or Part 91. That's right. So all the all the greater than fifty five pounds have to fly under Part ninety one. So there's there's different rules that you know services come back in, separation comes back in. Um, so we we have different different levels of approval. The problem with one hundred seven is there is no VFR, there is no IFR, there are no air traffic separation services. So we have to have the entire solution ourselves under broadcast. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear an awful lot from the FAA about uh, Part Part ninety one and how we need to fit um, large UAS, which I guess in FAA means over you know fifty five pounds, and then aircraft are flying above four hundred feet. So, I mean, you, you're you're saying that definitely you're going to see a different nav equipage between the two. Is that a is that a fair statement? That is that is my prognostication. <laughs> So, so what would you see under Part ninety one aircraft? The same stand, you know, the transponder, uh, ADSB out, TCAS. So know? I think it is. I think I don't think it's going to be TCAS because we ran into some latency issues when we did TCAS. And unless you have that full decision making autonomy on board the aircraft, that latency gets into uh, fugoids and things like that. Um, but I, I do see the, the the transponders and you know what is being looked at as low power ADSB or something to that effect. Uh, will be up there because the manned aircraft have to see it. You know, we talk about 
under 400 feet and all the issues there. But if you're in an urban environment, you're not going to see a lot of aircraft below 400 feet. If you're in an agricultural environment, you're going to see a lot of aircraft under 400 feet, maybe all the way down to 50. And you're a crop duster, which is going to have to fly below that. Exactly. So then we have an issue. If our our under 400-foot small UAS system only covers small UAS and doesn't have a, a good manned integration package, then that doesn't work in the rural agricultural areas. It may work fine in New York City or Chicago. And mm-hmm. same problem, if it works really great in small UAS, but we put it up to 1,000 feet or we put it up 3,000 feet, uh, depending on what you're trying to do, then that may not work with the manned aircraft as well. So again, I, I don't think there's that, that one size solution. I think we're looking at a very specific target set for the remote ID focus, which is these small, easily bought systems that, uh, you know, they're not purchased as aircraft, they're bought as um consumer or prosumer systems that are easily modified, and that's where people are concerned the threat comes from, you know, the, the next Gatwick or Maduro. That's a good point. All right, John, we got to take a break now to hear from our sponsor. But when we get back, let's talk about the big question for remote ID, infrastructure. What is it and who's paying for it? Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rody and Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rody and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. Welcome back, folks. Uh, John, let's discuss the 800-pound gorilla for broadcast ID in the room here. Um, Who's going to pay for all of this infrastructure? So I'm really glad you brought that up um, because as an industry, we we focus on the aircraft and the airmen and how do we get in the airspace, and then we ignore everything else. Right. And uh, and infrastructure. Checkbook, yeah. Right, exactly. At that point, because that's hard, right? A lot of people, especially when you're new, Getting a pilot qualified, getting an aircraft in the air, getting your approval is very, very difficult. But once you have that done, now we have to deal with the rest of it. Uh, And infrastructure, I think, is the the key to that, Uh, not just remote identification, but for UTM and a lot of other things. Right. Uh, One of the big challenges on that is that the the FAA has been very, very hesitant to uh, recognize any UAS-specific infrastructure as we're going forward, uh, and especially as a necessity. And in fact, they even went so far in the 2018 reauthorization bill to define a permanent area as the location you launch and recover uh, small unmanned aircraft systems from. And that bothered me because it wasn't the term airport or drone port. I mean, right now we qualify an airport as a dirt strip with a windsock, right? Or even somebody's lawn with a windsock and as an airport. Um, but we couldn't get there with the drone port. And I think that's going to be our long-term challenge with that development because without the ability to tap into government funding, they, you know, to develop these out, we're just not going to have that resource and it's going to run strictly on the so operator. when you itself. say government funding, you're talking about the complete ADSB system, which the FAA did pay for. Well, that's that's ADSB, but if we're looking at a non-ADSB solution, well, right? No, but, but it, so ADSB being uh, navigation fit out and remote right. ID for manned aircraft, you know, why isn't the FAA interested in paying for unmanned? Well, exactly. And we have a program for it, the non-federally owned program. It covers radio stations and navids that weren't built by the government, but are maintained to a higher standard. They're maintained to and continue their worthiness, um, and they're they're funded by an operator. Uh, a lot of flight schools do that. Emergency medical helicopters do it. And, and I think that's where we're going to end up being and having to have not just for remote ID, but with the next step, which is the the UTM. I mean, you can't have a UTM node be uh, a router from Best Buy out there on somebody's roof. It's got to have a higher level of assurance. I mean, I really think infrastructure gets is that fourth A, which is access. 
Right, right, right. And 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 just to follow up on that, um, you make a very good point that if there isn't a, a label on that actual need, it's very difficult for the federal government and, and for legislators and others to actually put an effort toward that when it comes to authorizing or appropriating certain responses. I mean, I'm looking very far into well, the which, future. Which, you know, they did for, for counter UAS and the uh, 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act. They made it clear you can use the airport improvement program to buy your counter UAS system. Is there a system out there to where the government could, uh, you, you mentioned one where the government would exercise oversight over private stuff, but, you know, shouldn't there be, if, if we're paying for ADSB for manned aircraft, shouldn't there be something out there for unmanned aircraft for the broadcast side? I completely agree once we've picked what that solution is. Right now, we don't have any clear winners. Good point. I, I can't point to something and go, okay, buy this from, uh, you know, from this company. This is the system we all want. It's the equivalent of ADSB, uh, but for a small aircraft. Uh, that just doesn't exist out there. It, it, it sounds like, though, earlier you were talking about where there could possibly be multiple winners. Can you can you embellish on that a little bit? Right. So how many antennas would you have on a broad, UAS remote ID broadcast antenna tower? Well, so if you think about 50? it, there's there's really only three major ISM bands they're using. So you still only need the 5.8, the 2.4, and the 900. And what are those associated with? So 2.4 is uh, Bluetooth as well as some Wi-Fi. 5.8 gigahertz is also Wi-Fi. And 900 is a, a lower band often used for telemetry. Uh, but those are all the ISM bands, the industrial, scientific, and medical bands uh, that you don't require a license for, but you have to accept the, the low power requirements. None of them are aviation protected frequencies. None of them at all. So we have those three. Yeah. We have potentially the aviation protected frequency of 5030 that was recently approved, right? So that's number four. And then potentially an LTE, which we've, we've talked about in other locations. Um, still not a ridiculous amount of, of antennas if this becomes a, a setup system. Where the the next part really comes into why that infrastructure piece becomes so important is, okay, your antennas work, but is the data reliable? Is it secure? Is right. it going where it needs to? Right, right. And can I rely on it? So if I'm using this for detect and avoid, you know, we forget the S is system, right? So I'm using this for detect and avoid is now part of the system. If I don't own it, how am I going to be responsible for making sure that the system is in a condition for safe flight unless there is some level of oversight and some level of some level of government oversight of gov well, government or, or voluntary compliance? We've done that pretty well with the light sport aircraft industry of here's our compliance. The non-federally owned program does the same thing. There is government oversight, but for the rest of the year, it's run so by an operator. Let's pull that thread on the on the other S word security. OK, now I. I ADSB is somewhat infamous uh, for being not secure, fairly easy to spoof, you know, and, and FAA's de and IKO's defense, uh, you know, they didn't really consider that back in the day. Right. How do you how do you make broadcast uh, secure, particularly when, as you're talking about, you could have dozens of different infrastructures and all that? Uh, how does that work? The LTE had a pretty good answer. What's your answer? Or your technology. Right. So the, the three rules of security is you have to have something, know something, and do something. Right. <laughs> right. That's it. Yes. Right, Two down. of those will work. One will always be compromised. Right. It's the password on your sticky note or what have you. So by levering that same type of approach is if I'm picking up a system and we're looking at it and it's supposed to be broadcasting on a, um, you know, a, a Bluetooth and we're able to run it off a database and go, OK, you know, this is a license plate. That license plate said it goes to a, two, a 2004 Ford. It's on a 2010 Chevy. We know there's a problem. Right. And we're able to tap into that. 
the so the security has as two different methods. One is, are you in the right spot with the right key? And the other one is, you know, can I check just like the TSA guy? I check your your ticket. I check your license, and you're the person on the ticket. Away we go. So we we have to have that level in there. Uh, so when we talk about the security. Those are those are two aspects of it. And the third, and I, I love this term because it's drawn all crazy kinds of crazy attention. Um, there's the blockchain solution. Right. Because we have blockchain, the indelible anti-counterfeit uh, idea. And, and that's one of those things that I've heard a lot of discussion that blockchain will be the solution for all of this. Uh, I think it's a good technology to look at. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. But uh, but I think that's definitely yeah. Sean and I go to South by Southwest quite a bit. There's actually a South by Southwest blockchain drinking game. You have to you have to chug every time someone mentions blockchain. You'd, you'd be really drunk. If you My were. favorite is the I'm a blockchain expert. I'm like, really? Let's talk about that <laughs> uh, and build through it from there. But but it is. I mean, I, I think there's there's some level of, of of cryptography and tokenization that we we understand we've done for years. Whether it's with smart chips and uh, credit cards or cat cards and, and smart IDs, uh, we just have to figure out what that's going to look like. But if we follow the performance based standard approach, then we're not picking a winner of it has to be this chip. It could be any one of a number of chips that all can perform the same way and pass the same uh, verification validation. Okay. All right. So, good answer. Uh, so, I am Mayberry RFD Police Department. I mean, how do I fit into this overall thing with uh, with uh, broadcast security? How are uh, how are state and local guys going to you know really participate in a broadcast thing? The LTE guys had a really good answer for this. What's your answer for the broadcast guys? So, I'm going to give you the same answer I gave during the ARC, uh, which is the automatic license plate reader. Right. So there's a fantastic industry out there of multiple uh, proprietary solutions, consumer, uh, not consumer, but um, commercial off the shelf solutions for automatic license plate readers uh, for law enforcement. You drive down a, a parking lot. It picks up everybody while you're driving, runs everybody automatically and tells you which cars are stolen or overparked or what have you. Uh, so Mayberry uh, will have the same type answer where you've got your device on top that has your, your appropriate intents, whatever the FAA has decided and whatever we finally end up being as the remote ID uh, solution. And there will be two things. One, there will be industry out there fighting for those DHS and FEMA grants to to get your money to put it on top of your patrol cars, okay. uh, right? Or uh, there will be very specific uh, government grants and, and things along those lines okay. to enforce so that. I'm seeing a problem here. Of course. So, the LTE guys had a great answer. So it's LTE. It's all about the network. You know, you just look on the phone. So you're saying, depending on what frequency, so you mentioned, uh, you know, 900, uh, you mentioned 1030, uh I could have to, if I'm Mayberry RFD, I might have to get a Doingle to fit into my cell phone or something. And if I'm Jim Poss and I want to find out who's hovering over my, my backyard, I got to go to Amazon and buy a Doingle to uh, to be able to tell who that guy is? So, well, you will get, you know, same-day shipping. Right. Yeah, 30 probably minutes or less. Drone, <laughs> exactly. so, yeah. I had to say that. No, it, it's, it's good. And that's a good point. So, I um, didn't articulate very well. So I think the answer isn't so much that you, Jim, pa, you know, Officer Poss does not have to go out and get that dongle from from Amazon. Um, but much like we've improved and modernized the equipment, not everybody has uh, the same equipment on all the patrol cars. Right? If I have a 10 mile range for this device, you don't need one on every single patrol car. You need them on the ones that cover that, that 10 mile radius, uh, just like what they do with fire lieutenants and police lieutenants. They have a different set of equipment than everybody else. Um, 
I see there's there's going to have to be some level of train up on with the law enforcement on what you're you're supposed to be looking at. And then additionally, I don't think they're going to need that many antennas because you're really only going to look at the 400 feet or above because Officer Posh shouldn't be chasing a 2,000, 3,000 foot uh, UAS is out there. Um, because yeah. that's probably not the the trespassing one, right? It's the the fifty to one hundred feet. It's the ones that are near critical infrastructure, uh, and that's where I, th- I think this mix of uh, fixed based infrastructure versus mobile infrastructure becomes so important. Okay, but so uh, I'm a I'm off duty. I'm at home, uh, and I got a drone hovering over my backyard. I understand how broadcast works. If it's Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, I just whip my phone out, but. It's 900 megahertz. I mean, have I got to get a coat hanger, stick that into the phone, or how does that work? So <laughs> now, now you're answering the other part, which is what is the level of information yeah, we're actually, actually going to have on, on the remote ID? And it would. Um, there's some really great software-defined radios. You can just plug right into iPhones and Androids and, and run from there. And some of them even have uh, apps that allow you to manipulate the radios on board. But we still haven't figured out what information is coming out. So the same way right now. Uh, if there's a car parked in front of your driveway, you can walk out and write down the license plate, but you can't run that data and figure out who it is. Uh, I think there's there's some discussion still to be had about how much of that remote ID information is going to be general public information, uh, especially in light of GDPR and those sort of things that have now uh, come out and become part of that discussion. Um, we, we mentioned it a little bit in one of the earlier episodes. The FAA kind of came out with a surprising RFI back in December asking about the viability of a remote ID uh, on manned uh, system service. Uh, LTE guy had a good answer for that, and it's dead easy for LTE. What, what, what would a remote ID, ID USS look like for broadcast technology? How does that work? See, I think it's going to be uh, like a reverse LORAN or NDB, right? So you have a system of navades out there that instead of them beaming out the information, they're hoovering in uh, the broadcast that's there and then feeding that to a, a larger picture. It's sort of like the way ADSB, the TISB broadcast works. So you, exactly. You, you got a receiver listening to that, and then you've also got one consolidated. In it. Right. And then we're feeding, we're feeding that out there. And Thought I had you. That it. <laughs> no, no, no. But he, he, he brought up Loran, and um, you know, he just completely threw us off balance here. Yeah, well, we remember Lauren. What, what are you saying? Are we old right. guys no, here? You know, take I said, as a former uh, sailboat racer, yeah. you know, I mean, that was the holy grail, you know. I, I've chased a bunch of bent radials. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> right. You, you tell that people now, they don't understand because they're everything's VFR direct and everything's GPS waypoint. Uh, and the reality is that you know we've we've actually I think it's a great opportunity because we've just taken all this navigate stuff out and we've rolled up this opportunity for uh, that type of infrastructure in place. Yeah. So, um, you know, John, look, um, if you could just kind of look in your crystal ball for us, because you've 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 talked about multiple tacks and how they may be blended. And we were kind of joking earlier about kind of like a a smoothie here where, you know, we've got a smoothie king and it's all coming together here. What 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 is this? What is this really going to look like? Because it looks like there's not going to be just one winner in the tech field. It looks like there's going to be multiple winners. I completely agree. And, and I love the smoothie analogy because I can think of, you know, your, your chocolate milkshake with the whipped cream on top. We've got two layers of this. Well, I was thinking like bananas and strawberries. Right. <laughs> but you, you've got the, the low level piece is going to be for small UAS because they have a different target set and they've got different requirements and different operating rules. And then we're going to have that larger layer on top for uh, the larger aircraft that are operating within other manned aircraft. So it's that 107, the 91 piece. And I think if we look at Lance as the example of where this is going to go, with Lance, there's 16 different providers, all who have their own proprietary app that you use, but they're all plugged in at Lance and they all get you the same uh, the same result at the end, that authorization. I think we're going to have something like that with Remote ID. Okay, John, 
Thank you so much for your insight into UAS Remote ID Broadcasting Scenarios. Sean, what are we going to cover in the final episode on the Remote ID series? Well, James, we have Gabe Cox, Drone Systems Architect for Intel Corporation and Chair of ASTM's F-38. Point zero two remote ID committee. We've asked Gabe to join us on Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat to discuss what Intel Corporation and the F-38 remote ID committee is doing in the way of identifying and tracking drones. We're really looking forward to his perspective, and that's why we've asked him to help us wrap up our four-part series on remote ID. So he's going to actually tell us what the standards going to tell us who the winners are. He's okay. the cleanup hitter. All right, gotcha. All right, well, folks, this concludes episode 11 of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'd like to thank our guest, John Daniels, CEO of Praxis Aerospace Concepts. We can't wait to see how your predictions play out in this next episode. Thank you. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.